And then as you're doing that or finishing doing that, go ahead and grab your Bible or your phone or your iPad, however you access the scriptures. And we are going to be in Acts chapter 21. We're going to look at the first 16 verses. And we are continuing through our series called Resurgence, which is started in September. We've been going through and looking at the book of Acts, which is the original record of how the church got started 2,000 years ago, and then asking the question, what did it look like then, and what is it supposed to look like now in light of what we're seeing and experiencing from the book of Acts? And so we've been walking through different passages, and so today we're, we're moving into a passage that kind of begins this uh, prolonged section of the book of Acts, which really is Paul's journey to Jerusalem, ultimately to Rome. And it's kind of, there's, it's a lot of very personal thing for Paul. If you hear last week, we talked about Paul saying goodbye to a group of people in Ephesus that he loved dearly. And now he's, he's kind of now moving towards where he's going and eventually where a lot of people don't think he should go, but he's convinced he's supposed to go. And one of the things that we're going to talk about today, before I even mention what, what we're going to focus on, is that one of the things that I've done in my life, and even as for our, our church, as we go through the book of Acts, I have read through the book of Acts multiple times in my life. I've taken a class on the book of Acts. But as we've been going through the, the book of Acts, I've really been asking the question, what do they have that we're missing? Because when, if, you're, if you're like me and you read through the book of Acts, I read through some of the stories and some of the things that have happened, and I think, where is that? And I know that God didn't just write stories and record stories 2,000 years ago just to tease us about what it used to be like. It isn't like God did a certain thing then and he's not doing it now because we know that God is consistent. And so if, if God hasn't changed, but the church has changed, the question is, what are we missing? And we've talked about some things that even last week we talked about, which is the power of the Holy Spirit, his work in our lives. And there's another one of those things this week that I want to kind of lean into that as I look particularly at Paul's life as we go, we've gone through the book of Acts, there's something in Paul that I know, I know I personally don't have to the depth that he has that actually keeps me from, I think, experiencing all the things that God wants to accomplish in and through me. And that's this thing called trust. Now, we use the word faith, and faith, I think, is a great word, but faith usually has to do with me believing in a concept. Trust has to do with me believing in a person. We trust in relationships. We normally don't say, I have faith in this person. You usually say, I trust them, which means there's a personal, personal kind of putting skin in the game. I believe that they can come through. I trust them with my life or with whatever you're dealing with. This morning, I want to talk about how we actually trust God's will, that God's at work. And the passage we're going to look at in a moment, the first 16 verses, really has something added to it that you and I struggle with trusting God. We, we, we say that we trust God, but we really don't walk that out. We really don't believe that. What I mean is this, what Paul, what we're gonna see in just a moment is that part of the process that God walks us through in life is that he will, believe it or not, depending on your background and your church background, God will intentionally lead you into difficult seasons in life. God will intentionally lead you into trials and difficulties and things that are in over your head. He will intentionally do that. So you will know God would never do that. Well, then the book of Acts is wrong then, but I believe it's right. And Paul's journey is right as well. And it's important because one of the things that we have a tendency to do when we get into a difficult season, the first thing that comes to our mind or to our lips is, God, where did you go? It was so good and then it all fell apart. And when it falls apart, there's this assumption, God, you've, you've left me. You, you were with me and now you're gone. And so now what am I supposed to do? And so we struggle. So we, we tend to shy away from those difficult things thinking God couldn't possibly be in that or we don't submit ourselves to those things because we, we believe differently. We don't want to go through the hard stuff. But you know what's interesting? I was just thinking about just our lives in general. 
we actually apply this kind of trust in other people that we don't apply to God, which is kind of sad. So here's an example. Anybody ever had a coach or a trainer that pushes you to do things that you don't think you could do and are painful because somehow good is going to come out of it? Anybody ever been to the gym? Anybody ever had a coach that's worked you harder than you're supposed to, you think you're supposed to, and in your mind you're pushing back on it and you think, how in the world can this be good for me? But you still do it. Why? Because somehow in the middle of that, you think that even though this is painful, something good is going to come out on the other side. You'll submit to a coach, you'll submit to a trainer, but will you submit to Jesus? See, Paul actually says this before we even get into the passage today. He says in his own words, something that we like to quote when life is good, but we want to forget about when life is bad. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Because you're thinking, this isn't good. How's this going to all work together for good? But if we trust that God's going to be present with us all the way through the trial, all the way through the pain, all the way through the struggle, then guess what it'll be? It will be good. It will be good. And so with that understanding this morning, I want us to start. We're going to start in Acts chapter 21. I'll read the first 16 verses. And then we're going to kind of use that as the launching pad to look at Paul's life and his own words from the New Testament that tells us the way that he trusted in Jesus in his life and how we're called to trust in the same. So let me read, starting in verse 1, Acts chapter 21, where they had just left Ephesus, and now they're on this journey. And it says, And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came to a straight course to cause, and then ne- the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patira. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come into sight of Cyprus, leaving on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for their ship, uh, the ship was uh, to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And though the Spirit, uh, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And when on our days had ended, we departed and went on our journey. And then all with wives and children accompanied us, and we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. And we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived in Ptolemy, and we were greeted by brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied, and while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt, and he bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And we, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, "Why are you doing? Why are you doing? Or excuse me, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus." And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, "Let the will of the Lord be done." And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So I want us to look, there's a couple of key things here. I want us to put ourselves in Paul's situation. So Paul is convinced that ultimately his life path that God is laying out for him because of him telling people about Jesus is going to lead him to Jerusalem where there's a group of Jews that want nothing less than to arrest him and, and kill him. And he's going there knowing that's true that will ultimately lead to them handing him over to the Gentiles, which is the Romans, which will lead him to go before Caesar. And then eventually down the road in his life, he will die for Jesus. 
he knows that's the trajectory of his life. So as he's going and he's greeting these people and there's this deep affection they have for him, through the Holy Spirit, he's getting these warnings. Do you notice the Holy Spirit's not saying, Paul, don't go. He's just warning Paul, bad stuff's coming your way when you go to Jerusalem. The interpretation of the people that he is with is what? Don't go. It wouldn't be good for you to go. It couldn't possibly be what God wants you. Why? Because there's people waiting there to imprison you and eventually they may take your life. So Paul, don't go. And what does he do? I'm ready to be in prison. I'm ready to die. I'm going. And then it's, it's great. They kind of throw up their hands and said, because he can't be convinced or persuaded, we just said, oh, let the will of the Lord be done, which is exactly what Paul's doing. It's exactly what he's doing. He's submitting himself to the will of God, which, by the way, the simplest understanding of the will of God, it's God's desired outcome for your life. Not your own. It's God's desired outcome for your life. Learning to trust that is what Paul had the ability to do that I think God wants us to have so that we can experience the things that he experienced for us today through the church. So there's six things from Paul's life that's come from this passage that or some other passages that have to do with how we learn to trust God. Because trusting God requires trusting in specific areas. It's easy to say, I'll trust God until God says, well, do you trust me here? You're like, well, no, not there, but over here. God gets specific, and here are the specific areas that Paul outlines for us and for our lives. The first thing is this. Trusting God requires trusting God's plan. God's plan for the world, God's plan for humanity. God had a plan embedded for all of us, but it was specific for Paul, and it is for us too. Remember back in Acts chapter 9 when we went through, that's when Jesus encounters Paul on the road to Damascus, gets his attention, and then later he actually, when he sends him, he sends somebody, a, a man named Ananias, who's going to go and tell him what his life's supposed to be back. And when God comes to Ananias to tell him to go to Paul, this is the encounter. It says, but the Lord said to him about Paul's life, he said to Ananias, go, this is of Paul, he has chosen a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Paul is coming to know, he's going to come to know Jesus through this encounter, and right away embedded in his salvation is this plan that God has that goes beyond Paul. Why is that significant? Because the truth of our salvation is that our salvation is never, ever meant to be a dead end when it comes to us. It's supposed to come to us so it can go through us. And when we become the goal of salvation only for ourselves, we miss God's plan for the world. Therefore, we miss God's plan for our life. Now, when I've talked about this before, people push back. Well, no, that was Paul. Paul was an apostle. Paul, remember, all of us are called. All of us are called to, to God's mission in the world. So what is God's plan? Here's a familiar passage that probably in our church, if you haven't heard, you've probably gotten sick of hearing it. But let's, let's read it again. Jesus' words, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. It says, And Jesus came and said to him, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Anybody heard that verse before? Yeah. That's the, that's the charge that God gives to all of us. Not just pastors and leaders and people in vocational ministry or people who are gifted. That is the charge that God gives to all of us. Why? Because the world is filled with people who are not finding and following Jesus. And we are saved not only for our own benefit to receive forgiveness of sin, to experience reconciliation with God, but he has saved us for the purpose of reconciling the world. So that means it, respond, it belongs to us. This is significant because you and I are all sitting here if you're a follower of Jesus because somebody else at one time in their life decided to influence you towards Jesus and that's why you're here. Because they realized that salvation was not an end in them. It was actually they were the conduit of their own salvation to get it to your life. 
experienced a powerful moment with our family over the 4th of July weekend. We, we went up to Fresno. My parents were celebrating their 60th wedding anniversary, which is incredible. So my dad is going to be 82 and just actually just turned 82, and my mom's 79, and they've been married for 60 years. And so we asked them, what did you want to do? They said, we want the family to come to Fresno, which is a miracle of God. Whoever wants, no one really wants to go to Fresno unless you really love people, right? If you're from Fresno, we'll pray for you, okay? But so we, we all, in fact, it was pretty cool because some of my extended family, some of like nieces and nephews, like a nephew I hadn't seen in 10 years was able to come with his family. It's just a great time. And so their one request when we were together for a couple of days was we want to have an extended amount of time where everybody comes to our house and we can just have a time of sharing and prayer together. And so, like, so we did that. So we all packed into my parents' house and different people shared what God was doing in their life. And then it led to this moment of prayer where we got my mom and my dad and we put them in kind of the middle and we all just kind of surrounded them. And, and there had been lots of tears through the morning and I hadn't cried at all. And this is the thought that hit my mind. I thought, I've made it through this whole morning without crying. Isn't that great? And then as my parents sat in the middle, I got down on my knees and I just took my dad's arm and, and my mom's knee and I was just praying and I just lost it. Because there are four generations sitting in that room. Over their 60 years of marriage, the influence over four generations, there was a group of people sitting in that room who found Jesus because years ago my parents decided to share their lives not only with people in the kingdom of God, which they've impacted thousands of people, but they made it a commitment to share their faith with their family. And there are four generations who are going to be able to be, experience the full reconciliation of Jesus because I just lost it. I could barely even pray. And then I prayed for me and my, my three sisters, my siblings, that there will be a day in our lives when we're in 82 and 79 with our spouse and celebrating 60 years of marriage where our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids can gather around us and thank God for our influence in their lives. Salvation is not just to us. It's through us. It's God's plan. Paul trusted God with that. He trusted enough to realize, I, he didn't, and Paul never said, I got mine, I'm good. But sometimes that's the very way we live our life. But there's people outside waiting for you to be the conduit of their salvation because that's God's plan for the world. Second thing, trusting God also requires trusting God's path, which is the way God leads you specifically in your life. So God's path for Paul, we know, included suffering and trials. That was God's path. God actually led Paul into difficult times on purpose. So much so that Paul takes a little snapshot of some of the trials and the sufferings he's gone through in his life in following Jesus and records, this is again a snapshot, just the highlights. Let's call them the lowlights. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 to 27. This is what he's gone through in following Jesus. He says, five times I've, reached, or I've received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, which is just short, short of death. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Who wants to sign up? When we're trying to help people find Jesus, we never take him to 2 Corinthians, do we? What is Paul saying? He's saying, this is what my life has looked like. But this is what Paul has done. This is the secret that Paul has. I trust my life to Jesus. 
I trust my path to Jesus. And if he leads me into a shipwreck, then there I go. If he leads me into getting stoned and, or to being beaten or to being hungry, whatever it is, I follow him. Why? Because I've already given my life. That's why Paul actually says in Galatians, this is not up on the screens, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. I died. I don't have any right to my life anymore. I, whatever path God lays out for me, that's the path I go on. Why? Because I trust him. That's why it's so difficult for us sometimes because we, we don't see suffering as a part of God's will. So in case we don't get it, Paul reminds us again, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Listen to this. He says, for you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ. We're like, love it. But what does the rest of the verse say? But also the privilege. Did you know it's a privilege of suffering for him? Not many of us go, oh, suffering. What a privilege. <laughs> and it's like, what a curse, right? But Paul says, no, because I trust in Jesus. We'll talk a minute what that suffering looks like in our lives. Why would God lead us into suffering? Why would God lead us into pain? Why would God lead us into trials? There's one primary purpose. Because God shows up in profound ways in the midst of our weakness, not in our strength. See, here's the problem. We want God to show up in our strength. On our best day, in our best moment, with our best ability, we want God to show up in power so our power is that much greater. There's a problem with that. When that happens, we have a tendency to forget it was God. And so what do we do? We take credit for what God does. So God leads us to moments where we have nothing. We just sang a song. What does it say? I'm not enough unless you come. What is that? That's a moment of weakness. God works most profoundly in our lives in our weakest moments. And Paul was reminded, you know, the great apostle Paul, listen to what he said of his own experience. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7 through 9, he says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, the things that God was showing him, he said, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. We don't know specifically what it is. We don't know if it was an ongoing temptation, a physical ailment, but something that he, he asked God to take away, and as we'll see, God doesn't take it away. It says in verse eight, it says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in, your, in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, you and I, you can't boast in what you've done. Because if we boast in what we've done, the pat on your back you get in that moment, kind of the pride that you feel, that's it. It's gone. But if you boast in your weakness of what God has done in his power, that lasts forever. That's our story. In fact, when we were praying this morning for the service, uh, we were gathered early to pray, the Lord gave me a, a distinct picture of something that I, Kim and I got to experience because we actually slowed down enough on vacation to do this. But normally I don't do this, and I probably need to do more time to take more time to do this. Some of you more, maybe have done this more, but when you have time at night to get away from a city where there's lots of lights and get where there's no fog and it's, the skies are clear and just sit outside and look at the sky, it'll blow you away. To look at the stars. See, we don't usually take that. We might notice it if there's a clear night in Simi Valley and we're driving, oh, look, there's stars. But have you ever just sat, just paused and just looked? The more you look, the more you see. And in fact, it keeps going. The, better, the more your eyes adjust to the darkness and the light, you see more stars. Here's the crazy thing about stars. Do you know that stars are out all the time? They are. We just can't see them all the time. 
because the sun creates a, really a blinding mechanism that we can't see the stars during the day. But at night, when there's darkness, guess what we see? Stars. See, God shines the brightest in the darkest moments of our life. We want God just to make the light lighter. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. He shines light into darkness. That means we have to be willing to be in darkness to see God shine the brightest. Think about the most critical moments of your life, the moments of your greatest weakness. Those are the moments that God does the most profound work in your life. I've shared a couple of, a couple of two most profound moments of weakness in my life was my overwhelming anxiety in middle school that God miraculously delivered me from. I had nothing to do with it. It was the power of God. And then as a senior pastor who had planted a church got into the end of myself because I thought I was a failure, God showed up and gave me a brand new identity. Those were at the lowest moments of my life. In fact, I, I met reference to my sister that when we were up at my parents' house in Fresno, I pointed to the place on their couch years and years ago where Kim and I had driven to Fresno and for three hours I sobbed in front of my parents saying my life is a complete failure. I told my sister, she goes, you did? I'm like, yeah. I said, but it was the best moment of my life because I finally got to the end of myself. See, that's why God leads us into difficult times. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't lead us and leave us. He leads us and then he does something miraculous and powerful in our life for his glory, which leads to the third thing. Here's another place of specifically trusting God. Trusting God requires trusting God's provision. This is a big one for us. So Paul trusted whether he had a lot or whether he had little. So he says this in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned uh, to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. We've all heard that. We all quote verse 13, don't we? Steph Curry's got it on his shoes. Man, that's why Nike wouldn't sign him. And he went with Under Armour, by the way, if you didn't know that. And it's great, but it's not meant to put numbers on a shoe. No offense to Steph Curry, great basketball player. What Paul's talking about is I've learned to do the impossible in spite of the fact if I have a lot or if I have little, I can be content no matter what I'm going through. Can you imagine what your life would be like at the lowest, especially when it comes to money and provision and our fear for now and our fear for the future? I'm not going to have enough. I'm not going to have enough. I don't have enough. God, where are you? And Paul's saying, oh, by the way, I've learned the secret of being content. It's Christ in me that gives me the ability to be at peace when my bank account is in the negative. When I don't know where my next paycheck is coming from or food is going to be on the table, Jesus is at work in me to find contentment. Can you imagine what that would be like? to have that level of contentment, that's trust. That's trust, and that's what Paul had. In fact, he goes on in the chapter, in chapter four of Philippians, and you get to verse 19, and he extends this to all of us. He says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now listen to the writer of Hebrews, goes further and gets specific about money, but puts in something that is so powerful. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Just let that settle in for a moment. In the context of money, provision, the biggest issue for probably all of us, God says, I won't leave you or forsake you. Paul understood that. 
That's why Paul actually could actually be hungry and still know that God was going to sustain him. That he could have no money and God was still going to sustain him. That's why he could go through what he was going through. Why? Because he trusted God to provide. When we don't, when, here's the challenge, the flip side, is that when we call out for God's blessing, there's a danger in God's blessing. We forget about God. It is. That's why Paul said, he mentions, he didn't just say, hey, I can be content when I don't have anything. He said, I can be content when I have everything because I still remember it's God. This is a human pattern for all of us. We have a tendency when God pours out his blessing, we're like, thank you, God. And then shortly after that, we forget where it came from. This is exactly what Israel did thousands of years ago. You remember their journey for over 400 years of slavery in Egypt and God sets them free. They go out into the wilderness and God actually has set up for them to go right in the promised land. They disobey him, cost them a generation and 40 more years. And then he finally gets them into the promised land. They cross over to the Jordan and they get into the promised land. They take the land and you remember what happens after that? It's all downhill from there. It is. Because in, in, in the midst of God blessing them and giving everything, you know what they, they have the audacity to say to God? They said, give us a king. We want to be just like everybody else. We need somebody on the earth that we can point at. And God was supposed to be Israel's king, and so God acquiesced, and he gave him a king. Worked out great, didn't it? That's sarcasm. Absolutely not. You can't find a perfect king. You can't. They're all flawed because they were never supposed to be the leaders of God's people. God was supposed to be the leader of God's people. And that's why, because they forgot who provided the promised land to them. It was God himself. That's why we have to be content when we have nothing and content when we have everything. Why? Because if I have a lot or I have little, God's still going to take care of me. Because I don't put my faith in my bank account, my 401k, whatever investment I have. I don't put my, bank or my, my faith in that or even my job or my raise. I trust that God is going to sustain me and God is going to provide for me. That's what Paul had. And that's why he could live the life that he lived. Fourth thing is that we have to be willing to trust in God's purpose. So Paul trusted that at every point of his life, there was a greater purpose that what God was accomplishing that was bigger than him. God's purpose for your life is bigger than your life. And the primary purpose for all of humanity, in a nutshell, is to bring glory to God. And how is that done? Paul highlights it. We, if you were here last week, we were in Acts 20, and this is probably, I've had a number of people come to me and say, this is my favorite verse. He says this in verse 24 of Acts 20. He says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Ultimately, it's about God. It's ultimately about God. Everything we do is for God's glory. Why is that so significant? You think, wow, God's pretty egotistical. It's all about him. If you were perfect and you had no flaws and you were the God of the universe and you were eternal and you've always existed and always will be, you have every right to have glory given to you. Because don't you want to give glory to the best and there is no one better than God? But everything that we do is geared to bring glory. That's where we find our fulfillment. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, verse 31, he says, everything you do, whether you're eating or you're drinking, whatever you do when you live your life, all of it's supposed to be done for one purpose, to point to God, to give glory to God, not to give glory to ourselves. And that's what Paul trusted in. Paul was able to trust in that. And because of that, there's this amazing thing that happens when we get to tell people about God's greatness and God's glory in our life and not take credit for it. We are never more fulfilled than when we're telling people about God's glory. We were, are never less fulfilled <laughs> when we're telling people the glory of our own lives because it's always disappointing because it's always temporary. It doesn't lead to anything eternal. But when we're talking about God's stuff, 
then we're now telling people something beyond us. So those of you who have been a part of our church for a long time, you know the history, but, but one of the things that's kind of interesting that in the last six years since I've been here, that the way that God has worked has been miraculous, not because of me, but because God is faithful to his church, and that's what's so amazing. But our church in our denomination, Foursquare, is known. It has a history. In fact, uh, when it first started, the first eight to ten years of the church's history, it was the fastest-growing Foursquare church in the country. So it was on everybody's radar. So our denomination is well aware of our church. And you know what else also they're aware of? All of its failures and all of its warts and all of its ugly seasons. So pastors that I know know that I'm pastoring the church that used to be Sunrise, that used to be New Hope, and now is called Antioch. And so they'll ask me, in fact, they'll see where we're at tonight. And this is what happens so often. We'll be at a conference and they'll say, wow, we know where the church is at right now and what's happened in the building and all that stuff. And this is what they'll say, you're a genius. And I stopped and I said, absolutely not. I am not a genius. God is a genius. And then I get to tell them our story. I get to tell them how all we had in mind when we were leaving the Shasta building was we just had to find some other smaller space, less, afford, less expensive to lease because we literally had no money in the bank. And that's what we were looking at. And we looked at a couple of different buildings. And then our realtor, who doesn't even know Jesus... Pray for him, because I couldn't even get him to come to our grand opening, but he doesn't even know Jesus, says, hey, John, you know what? You really should think about buying. I'm like, you're crazy. He goes, no, 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 you shouldn't lease. He goes, there's a building that you need to look at because it has a tenant that leases, and there's income that comes from that. And if you run the numbers, I'm like, fine, Doug, I'll go look with you. And we looked at this building. He goes, let's sit down and run the numbers. And I looked, I thought, oh, my goodness, that's God's math. And here's the crazy thing. You've known this. If you've been here, we went from $21,000 a month at Shasta to pay for a building that was falling apart that we didn't own to now it costs us about net cost about three grand a month out of our monthly budget to buy this building. I am not smart enough. Only God is good enough to do that. And that's why I love when people say you're a genius because I get to say, no, I'm not. And this is the cool thing. Since we've been in this building, most of you don't even know this. I can't tell you how many pastors I've taken on tours through this building because our denomination says, go talk to John. And they come in and say, what's the genius? And I'm like, let me tell you the story. Let me tell you the story how God got this church here and I was along for the ride. It's awesome. And God gets the glory. And I've watched pastors who are in the same situation walk away filled with faith. You know why? Because they realized it wasn't my smarts that did it. And they realize, I don't have the smarts either, just like you, but if I trust God, maybe he might do something miraculous in the church. That's the glory of God. Tell his story. That's what Paul got. Everything I do is not about me. It's about him. And if we realize that, then we'll trust him. We'll trust in what he wants to do. We'll trust his purpose for our lives. And then there's two more. The fifth thing is trusting God requires trusting God's power. So Paul did everything, not in his own ability, but through the power that God gave him. Remember I told you earlier in Acts chapter 9 that God's going to send this guy named Ananias, and he's going to go to Paul after Paul's been blinded for three days, and he's sitting in his house. And so God sends him there, and listen to what he says. It says, so Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight, because he had been blinded, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Everything changed for Paul in this moment. Three days earlier, he was on a road where he encounters Jesus. He experiences what we call salvation. Three days after that, he's still blinded. He experiences being filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit, and everything changes for Paul's life because now he knows, I am not functioning under my ability. I am doing things through the power of God in my life. 
which is incredible. It's the same thing that we're supposed to experience. We're supposed to. In fact, this is one of the things of resurgence, going through the book of Acts. The experience in the book of Acts and what we call Pentecostal, which, by the way, that's the heritage we have, and I don't like the term because it, it categorizes Pentecostal or a certain element of the church as kind of the power-hungry, crazy people. And what we're seeing in the book of Acts and what Pentecostalism is supposed to be is normal Christianity. If we don't function in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're not fully being who God's called us to be. No shade on any other denomination or church. God did not show up with his Holy Spirit and then somehow go on hiatus. It's the same spirit working 2,000 years ago that did it. Otherwise, God's playing games with his church. He's saying, hey, look how great it used to be, but ah, sorry, it's not going to happen that way for you. That would be cruel for God to do that. But Paul realized he's living under the power of the Holy Spirit, which we're supposed to experience. That's why in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says, don't be drunk with wine. Don't be altered by a substance, but what? Be filled with the Spirit. In fact, it's in the present tense, which means Keep on being filled over and over and over and over again. Why? Because we have a tendency to forget it's God's power and not ours. So anybody recall how we ended the service last Sunday and there was some homework as we left that daily we were supposed to do something? Anybody recall what that was? Exactly. See, this is why I love this service. First service, nobody got it. But Julie was listening last week. And all of us were listening that... Monday morning, you're going to wake up and you're going to forget that we were supposed to lean in and pray for God to fill us with his spirit every single day because you were going to walk into a day where, guess what? You were going to encounter a situation where you were in over your head. I got up Monday morning and I knew it was coming that day and I thought, there's a lot of things I need prayer for. And so I submitted myself. I said, Jesus, send your spirit because I don't have the brain power. I don't have the ability. I don't have the insight that the people I'm going to counsel today need. They don't need me. They need you. In fact, one of the counseling sessions I was going, I was on my way to, and I was just feeling like, God, what am I going to say? And I just said, Lord, I need you. I need your spirit's wisdom and insight and power because this person doesn't need advice from John Amsetz. They need a word from the Lord. And guess what? God showed up. It's a great encounter with this person about what God's doing in their life. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what Paul did. That's why all the crazy stuff that Paul has experienced, that's why you'll read through the book of Acts, and, and quite often you'll see a little phrase before he and Peter do stuff. It says, Peter or Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Not fill themselves, fill the Holy Spirit. So on a daily, ongoing basis, we submit ourselves to being filled with the Spirit so that God will do his work. Now there's a last thing that I want to spend a few moments on, and that is this. And this is the one that probably most of us struggle with most. Trusting God requires trusting God's presence. God makes a promise to Paul and to all of us that we should trust and believe in his presence. Because again, I know there's the reality of what I, I think we are good at saying God is good, but bad at living out that God is good. Because the moment things are not good, then God's not good. And we struggle with that. Because we think that God has left us. We really do. I mean, how many times in your life have you gone through a dark season of your soul and you really, in your mind, you are questioning if God even knows you exist anymore. He, even if you're on the radar, it's like he's gotten so busy with all the people over here that somehow he didn't have time for you. Anybody would admit you've ever felt that? I have. But God is always present with us. In fact, he, there's these reminders throughout scripture, because we are so easy to forget. That's why we read Hebrews 13, 5, that in the midst of money, God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20 again, because the first time I read it, I left off probably the most important part of the verse to us. 
the end of verse 20. There's something that God says that you and I have to be reminded. It's one of the reasons we don't lean into the Great Commission or God's mission because we forget something very important. Let me read it again. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And here it is. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's important. Because what's the first thing you and I think? God's not with me. Especially when you're trying to help people find Jesus who don't seem to want to find Jesus. Or trying to help people who found Jesus try to follow Jesus who don't really want to follow Jesus. If you have kids, you'll get this. Anybody ever struggle with your child being obedient? Okay. We, uh, we multiply that when we're trying to get adults <laughs> who are strong-willed in their own belief, think that they have all the answers, trying to submit their will to God's will and follow Jesus. That's an impossible task. And there's been times, and I know all of us, if you ever worked with people, you feel like, God, where in the world are you? You could just zap them right now, make them, make them follow you, but you're not doing that. Why aren't you doing that? Because God is at work in the way that he wants to be at work, but he's reminding us, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. Whether it's money, whether it's his mission, whether it's purpose, whatever, God never, ever leaves us or forsakes us, is always present with us. I remember the first time that I experienced what it means to have somebody present with you. Because I, I've shared about my anxiety that used to go through the roof, especially when I was a kid. And, and when I was younger, um, one, of the, one of the great fears, I had really strange fears, but it was always, it was always a disconnect for my parents. I had, I had terrible anxiety for my parents. So like going to camp, I didn't want to do that when I was a kid. Going out of their house, even going to school caused fear. So there was always when there was this disconnect. And coupled with that, if you took disconnection with my parents and then, get this, Going on a roller coaster, that was like, I should just die right now. Those are like my two worst fears combined. So this will tell you how old I was. One, one, uh, one week, uh, my, it was in the summer, my aunt came to my mom and said, hey, we're going to take uh, our kids, which actually at the time was my nephew, who's seven years younger than me, uh, and we're going to go to Disneyland, and they wanted me to come. I'm like, I'd love to go. I love Disneyland. Now, this was the first time I'd gone to Disneyland after Space Mountain had opened. So that tells you, I'm old. Yeah, I am. And this is all I knew. I had seen the commercial for Space Mountain, and it combined two really scary things, a roller coaster and darkness. Not a good idea, right? Anybody remember the original commercials for Space Mountain? They literally showed a roller coaster going into the abyss and disappearing. I'm like, oh, no, I'm not going on that ride. But sure enough, we get in the park, and what's the first ride my aunt wants to go on? Space Mountain. So we get in line. And if you've been on Space Mountain, even though they've redesigned it, they still have it set up this way. And it's, it's for safety purposes, but I know it's also for another reason. Halfway through the line, just as you come into where the roller coaster is, and you hear people screaming, and you hear the noise, and you hear the music, and you hear all this, there's an emergency exit, a.k.a. chicken exit. It's what it is. And so as we were coming up to it, I'm like, oh, my salvation is here. I'm waiting in line, and I'm like, I'm not going to go on this. I'm going to get to that. I'm going to let them go on. By the way, my cousin, who's seven years younger than me, can't wait to get on the ride, and I'm freaking out. My palms are sweating. My, my pulse is elevated. I, my hands are shaking. I'm like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And we get to the chicken exit, and I, I announce to my aunt, I can't do this. I said, I'll catch up to you guys after you get off the ride. Now, my aunt was a little stronger than my mom. Mom would have said, sure, honey, go ahead. 
my aunt steps in, in front of the emergency station. She goes, you're going on this ride. I'm like, oh, no, I'm not. She goes, you're going on this ride. I said, no, you don't understand. I can't do this. I'm going to die. She says, no, you're going on this ride. She was a lot bigger than I was, so I'm like, okay. So I'm like, there's got to be a secondary chicken exit somewhere, right? And there wasn't. So we get on it. She goes, this is how you're going to do it. She goes, and my uncle, who to me at the time, he's, he's, he's large, but he was six, he's six two. So when I was a kid, I just look up and he's a big guy, big, strong, kind of silent guy, but just, just carried himself. And she goes, because you're going to sit next to your uncle and he's going to be, be with you all the way through the ride. I'm like, okay, it makes it a little bit better, but I'm still going to die, but I'll do this. So we get on the ride, no joke, we get down, we sit down, and you'll get, you get that little bar that's supposed to save your life, right? And I look over, and I reach right over, and I grabbed his forearm, and I just, both hands, just squeezed. And we haven't even left the gate yet. We're not even moving yet. I'm just like hanging on, and he's looking at me and smiling. And the whole way, I just hung onto his arm. Closed my eyes at some parts, and kept digging into his arm with my nails. And sure enough, just you, he could tell the intensity was getting more and more. And by the end of the ride, I was, I mean, I think I had cut circulation off to the, you know, his wrist. And, and so we finished the ride and I just, I'm like, literally I turned to my uncle and I said, can we do it again? <laughs> I think he looked at his arm and thought, I don't know about that. But I remember what in my mind I kept thinking, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how bad it gets, he's still right here. I can feel him. I can feel him. I can feel him. Even if it's dark, he's still there. He's still there. And he was there all the way to the end. And I, I still go back to that moment as a kid because anxiety is a huge deal for me. And there's those moments I remember that God's bigger and greater than my uncle. And he's with me even through more difficult things than facing the fear of a roller coaster. And that any moment that I don't feel God's presence, it's not because he's not there. It's because I've just forgotten that he's not there. And all I have to do is call out to him and he's present in my life. What if you and I had unlimited, unrestricted trust that God is always present? That's why in the midst of difficulties, you can have joy. That's the only way you can do it. That's why Paul and Silas in Acts 16, after being arrested for, for freeing a slave girl from a demon and being beaten to within an inch of their life, to almost dying, and then being in a prison where they've now been tortured and now they're in these stocks and most likely they're gonna die tomorrow. What were they doing in Acts 16 verse 25 when it says about midnight, they were doing what? Singing praises to God. What? Why? Because they knew that Jesus was in the prison with them, that he would never leave them or forsake them. And that's why Paul said, by the way, if I die, it's gain. In fact, you know what Paul was saying? It's better for me if I die. It's better for you if I live. But for your sake, I'll stick around. That's what Paul was saying. That's kind of a loose translation of Paul's words. But that's what he was saying. Why? Because Paul had such a trust. Whether I live or I die, whether it's good or it's bad, whether I suffer or I'm prospering, guess what? It's all God. I trust him with my life. What if we live that way? I think we'd start to experience more what they experienced in the book of Acts. Why? Because we would not be afraid to do anything God's called us to do. We'd take any path he, was, he wanted us to go on. We would embrace his mission fully. Why? Because I can't lose because he's always with me. Let's go ahead and close your eyes. I'm going to ask you just to, to focus for a moment on specifically the things that you are facing today. The, the worship team is going to join us again. We're going we're to go back to a song that we sang earlier that reminds us that not for a minute have we ever been forsaken or left alone by God. Not for even a second. But I know that those can feel just like words when you're facing overwhelmed circumstances. We saw Paul's list of what he went through, shipwrecked and being beaten and marginalized and hungry and 
all those things, and even having either a physical or a temptation ailment that kept coming his way, but he knew that God's grace was always sufficient for him. I believe that God wants to demonstrate his sufficiency for you today, that you truly can trust him. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is, you already know in your own mind and your heart maybe the things that you're facing and you're walking through, the, the places or the things that have caused you to say to yourself or even to others that God has left me. Maybe it's disease that you face. Maybe you have a diagnosis and you don't know how to navigate that and you're convinced because you have a disease that God is not present. Or maybe you're struggling in your marriage and maybe you're on the verge of divorce and you're convinced that God is not present. Or maybe you're at a place where you've lost your job and you don't know where money's coming from and so you feel God is not present. God wants you to know that in the midst of the, your lowest moment, he's gonna demonstrate his glory. He's gonna show his power in the midst of your weakness, but he's wanting you to surrender your weakness to him today. So whatever it is that you know that has caused you to question God's presence, then today I'm gonna say, as I'm gonna pray in a moment, you're gonna lay it out before him. And you're going to submit it to him and you're going to say, Jesus, I choose to trust you with this, that you will never leave me. You will never forsake me. I can trust your purpose. I can trust your plan. I can trust your provision. I can trust all those things because I know that you're with me. So Lord Jesus, I, I pray right now as we lay those things before you, that Lord, I know as I prayed this morning, whatever it takes for each one of us to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you are present, would you do that? That's the kind of God you are. You do prove yourself. And Lord, I'm reminded even when, when all the disciples, even those who had yet to really see you, started to believe that you actually had risen from the dead, there was Thomas who was the holdout, who just said, I've got to see him. I've got to touch where the nail prints are in his, on his, on his body. I've got to know for sure. And you came in that room. And in the midst of his doubt, in the midst of his believing that it wasn't real, that you really had left and forsaken him, you showed up and showed him in such a way that he confessed spontaneously. And he said to you, my Lord and my God. And Thomas's life was changed forever. Lord, I ask that right now you would bring those kind of moments for us. As if you were to walk in this room right now, you were to show us right in the midst of our greatest pain, our failure, our lowest moment, that you're here you will never leave us and you will never forsake us and that when you show up we have more than enough of your power to make our way through whatever we face because you are here we thank you jesus in your name